Hi, everyone, and welcome to Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. My guest today is none other than Daniel Martin. Daniel is a makeup artist, an entrepreneur, and the global director of artistry and education at Tatcha. Daniel has a wealth of experience, both professionally and just personally, in who he is and the life that he's led. He has a very multicultural background with English, French, American, and Vietnamese as his cultural makeup. And he grew up in Central America, lived in Seoul for his formative years as well. So he grew up feeling that his identity was all over the place. But I think what it contributed to was this inherent understanding of and acceptance of people from all different backgrounds. And we talk about how this mixture of cultures is key to a more harmonious existence, because sometimes the homogenization of culture can lead to more divisiveness. You know, when we think we are so different from each other, um, when we have this feeling of comparing and contrasting and competition, wanting to put each other into a box, whether that is including somebody or excluding somebody based on assumptions that we might have of the other person. And ultimately, I think it is just remembering that we are all human. We're all of the human race. And I think the more that an individual embodies various backgrounds, whether it is in someone's bloodline or by marriage or by having lived somewhere other than when you were born, the more of the world that we can experience, the more we understand the world and each other. And Daniel really embodies this. He has an uh, acute understanding of the beauty world, of course, doing what he does, as well as the fashion world and the entertainment world at large. And he shares a very interesting perspective about Seoul, Seoul, Korea, being the Hollywood of Asia. And, you know, I'm Korean, but I never thought about it in those exact terms, but it certainly makes sense. And it's exciting to think that there is this renaissance coming out of Seoul that is moving throughout the continent of Asia and that we here in the West are also witnessing and getting to celebrate and learn from. We also talk about the fact that it's not always all good. You know, Daniel gets into the reality of colorism within our Asian community. And this plays out in beauty standards and expectations as well. And Daniel shares a bit about the things that he has seen and ultimately reminds us that what is important is not just what we look like and what we do, but but who we are. And he encourages us to know that we all have a purpose and we have a voice and to use that. I found it really refreshing that he 
is a self-proclaimed anti-makeup makeup artist. Um, makeup is something for me that I've always felt intimidated by. And I share a personal story about my daughter, my three-year-old, who has so much fun with dressing up and pretending like she's putting makeup on. And, um, you know, I wanted to just share with Daniel about my kids and I made a mention of my older child being a son. And I said how, oh, he wasn't interested in the same stuff. And I didn't think of anything at the time, but it was very apparent to me as I was listening back that I was being so gender assuming and gender normative and... And I certainly don't want to perpetuate stereotypes and expectations. So I just wanted to make a little call out on that. Of course, Daniel is gracious throughout the entire conversation and leaves us with such a beautiful message that life is about thinking about others first. And I think that's a really important thing that we all need to be focused on at this point in time. I also think that you will feel so uplifted by spending a little time with Daniel Martin. So enjoy. Let me officially welcome you to Voices on the Side. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, and I'd love to just start right at the beginning with um, where you grew up. Oh, gosh. Um, I kind of grew up all over the place. My father's English, French, but he's American. And my mother's Vietnamese. So I was born in the States, in Kansas, actually, in 1973. And then soon afterwards, my father uh, relocated. He was in the military. So we moved to Central America. So I grew up overseas and was in Central America until I was about 10 or 11 and then moved back to the States. Um, and then my parents got divorced. My mother moved to Germany and my father had custody of us. And then we moved to Asia where we met our stepmother and our stepsisters. So we were in Seoul in the 80s. Yeah. So I was there. My parents got divorced when I was 12. Yeah. So between like 12 and 14, um, I was in Seoul. So that was kind of like my first experience with Asian culture. Um, we never grew up knowing my mother's side. She never really talked about it. But we just assumed that they were killed in the war, in the Vietnam War. So we didn't know anything about that part of her life. And she never spoke Vietnamese with us. So it was interesting to go to Seoul as a teenager and look like everybody else, but not have either Korean or Vietnamese as a second language. I grew up in Central America, so I understood Spanish. I spoke Spanish. It was a total personal reckoning that I looked a certain way, but didn't understand. And my whole cultural identity was just kind of all over the place. And why Korea? Why was it like a, because your dad was stationed? So my father, he was um, in security and he was doing security for the Olympics in Seoul in 88. Got it. So that's how we wound up in Seoul. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm actually Korean. Oh, okay. Yeah. Were you in were you in Korea then in the 80s? 
No, no, no. I was, my parents immigrated in, as soon as they graduated college, they immigrated to the States and I was born here. Uh, I definitely remember 1988, the Olympics being there. It was, um, I felt like people didn't really know Korea when I was in elementary school. Like it's just such a tiny country and the Olympics. And I remember the tiger um, that was the mascot of the Olympics. And oh, yeah, yeah. I had like t-shirts with like him on it. And it was one of the first moments that I felt like, oh, Korea was finally making its making itself known in the States at least. But we did get to go back a lot throughout our my childhood. And I felt really similarly to you in that I looked, you know, at first glance, I looked Korean and like everybody else, but and actually, I spoke, I speak a bit and my pronunciation is pretty decent because I learned at home. So I sound like a native speaker, but my vocabulary is very limited. So I could, if I got into a store somewhere, I could say, I could say hello and kind of pretend like I was Korean. But as soon as they said something that I didn't understand, you know, <laughs> the word, what they meant, um, it all came crashing down. And it's such a such a weird thing to know that what people see is not at all what who I really am, whatever, whatever that means, like whatever who I really am means. Yeah. Yeah. So then you after two years in Seoul, you did you move to the States? Yeah, we moved back to the States and my dad eventually retired, but then he got a job working as um, security director at Boeing. So we wound up in Seattle. So I went to high school and college there. Did it have a pretty significant like Asian population? Yes and no. Like we moved back, we moved to Seattle in 89, 89, 90. We had Asians there, but it wasn't like where my parents live now in Federal Way. There's a very big Korean community. From my understanding, the largest outside of Seoul right now. So it completely changed between 1989 till now. And then my stepsisters are Korean. My oldest stepsister went to UW. My niece went to UW. So when I left Seattle in 95 and came to the East Coast, it was a whole other life. And that was kind of like the, the interesting thing about me growing up. The way that I did was I was able to kind of mutate and be flexible and just be able to just kind of easily move around. Growing up in all these different places definitely helped that. But I knew when I was in fifth grade that I wanted to move to New York City. So that was the goal. Did you feel like people treated you as like as how they treated other Asian people? Did you feel like more Asian or for me, because I always felt like the token, I often was a token in my classrooms. There might've been like a handful of people that the kids that were not white, but it was like, I remember distinctly, like there, there was like one Indian boy, you know, and no black kids in my, my elementary school, pretty much. I don't think ever in my grade. Um, so I was very aware that I was different and I felt it and I felt treated like that. Although I don't know how much of that was internalized with my own, just like feeling self-conscious, but um, I wonder how it felt for you because you have all these like kind of mixed layers of your identity. You probably didn't feel fully American um, because you had lived in all these different places. So did it feel kind of like you could just chameleon your way in, in, within like different social circles? 
That's so interesting. I did because I look a certain way. My name is very Caucasian. The way that I speak, I sound very Caucasian. My cousins would tease me like, they'd be like, you're very gray area. You can move socially into all these different, you know, groups and your identity isn't the first thing that people notice about you. Or like, it didn't really... As a kid, it was much easier to move around, I think, socially in terms of different groups and meeting different people. It wasn't until I was older, for some odd reason, that when they would see Daniel Martin and then they would see an Asian face, they're like, oh, he must be adopted. Or it wasn't until I got into this line of work that they're like, oh, he must be Daniel Martin's assistant. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so I didn't really experience... Um, microaggressions or racism till much older because mm. back then as a kid in the eighties, I don't know. It just, it wasn't a thing. I mean, I did notice like I was the first Asian at my elementary school in Maine. It didn't make you no, because yeah. it, cause, it, cause I think as a kid you went and until you're faced with that challenge, well, it becomes reality to you, but I never felt othered as a kid. And then when we moved to Central America, I went to an international school where there were, you know, uh, I remember this black girl who was Haitian, but she spoke French. And I just thought that was the coolest thing because my father's French and my mom and my dad spoke French to each other. So I'd never seen that before. So, and it was like a, a Brazilian girl in my class that had green eyes and blonde hair. So I was very fortunate to go to this international school and just see different types of kids who are speaking different kinds of languages. And I think that's another reason why New York was so, was so appealing to me was because it was a melting pot. I was just going to say, like, I think that's the answer to more just like understanding amongst different groups is just being in those spaces where there are people that look different, that some look like you, some don't look like you. And there's all these different backgrounds. And it's like the homogenization of like culture that I think just continues the divisiveness. And I just think like the answer to more peace and acceptance um, and just understanding is just like being together with other people because then you just realize like, oh, it doesn't matter what you look like, what language you speak or what anything else. Like we're all people. <laughs> we're yeah, all exactly. People. Exactly. Yeah. I remember going to my high school and um, we had gotten up until that point, we were living on military bases and usually on a military base, you have just a bunch of different types of kids. And then when we went to this, when we got out of when my father retired and we went to a public high school where it was just, it was literally like 16 candles where you had your jocks, you had your gods, you had your metalheads. And I remember registering for school and seeing those subgroups. And I remember just thinking, fuck, where am I gonna like fit in? Because at the time I was kind of like this goth kid that played soccer. So I had like, you know, the Robert Smith hair, but I, but I played sports. So there were, you know, I didn't really fit into a group, but it was just like, okay, where do I fit in? And I found my people eventually. And I mean, I had a great high school. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad. It wasn't traumatic. 
And I think it was because I was able to adapt to different people growing up. And I think, you know, it starts really young. It starts, you know, when you're introduced to diversity at a very young age, it definitely shapes who you become and it gives you a sense of empathy. And when you said that you didn't start feeling any of the othering until later. So that was, was that after high school, after college? Like, yeah. 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 Like when I started my professional career, Okay, that's when when I started to feel really othered. Did it stop at people just expecting to see a different face based on your name or did it carry on and did it have to do with the industry that you were in? Like, you know, it's the industry I came up in fashion. Yes. Fashion's very clicky. Can you tell us a little bit about like your first, like your first jobs and your career path a bit? Yeah. So I started at a salon in Virginia and it was an Aveda concept salon. And this was like mid nineties. And at the time, Pat McGrath was consulting for Aveda and I had met her through that. And then when I decided to move to New York, I moved to New York and then I reached out to her agency and then I just started assisting on her team. So that's kind of like how I got my foot in the fashion business, but it wasn't until like 2004 that I truly decided to focus on makeup. I mean, at that point I was teaching for Aveda. I was doing side gigs. I was just kind of hustling because New York is so expensive. I wasn't getting paid on time. It was just like a big mess. So I went back to working full-time for Aveda, but I was doing education and marketing. So I really got to understand product development, how to, you know, make things, how to create products. It wasn't until 9-11 that I realized that I, you know, I didn't move to New York to work a corporate beauty job. I came to do makeup. So in 2004, I left. And that's when I went headfirst into freelance makeup. So it was interesting because at the time that I started, it was kind of like chic to have an all Asian crew, backstage crew. Really? You know, yeah. Like all the assistants were Japanese. A lot of them, you know, English was a second language. And it was just like this, like the cool thing to have an all Asian team. So to this day, there's not a lot of peers of my generation that are still working because it's it just wasn't sustainable. So it was sort of like a, sh- a trend of the moment. And then it... Yeah. And then it the you know business split up in the sense that you know you started you either stayed in fashion or you did more celebrity and i chose to do more celebrity because that's where the money was right and how did you even was it just by connections that you even got those jobs and obviously yeah. because you do amazing work so that speaks for itself and you build your reputation um did you ever feel that your identity was like a hindrance in any way? Um, That's such a great question because I feel like because I don't see a lot of the contemporaries that I came up with now, I do feel like if you didn't make space, if you didn't create the space, you wouldn't have been recognized. Like you had to fight for it, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Or, you know, really convince certain people that you are worthy to do the job. Um, I mean, I just learned so much about the industry 
up until that point that I told myself that I will never treat my assistant the way that I was treated. I wonder also if you had like that inner sort of confidence because of your diverse upbringing and having grown up in other places and being having been able to sort of fit in with various groups and lean into different parts of your identity. I wonder if that gave you like that belief to, you know, to just go for what you wanted to do and to know, to to be clear on how you wanted to do that and how you wanted to treat people. Yeah, I think that definitely helped. I also feel like I was very fortunate that when I decided to go out on my own, that I met someone who basically kind of reinvented my career in the sense that like introduced me to the right people, um, really believed in the work that I was doing, really understood my point of view. Once you understand that and that in the business that I'm in, it really helps shape how you move rather than just being someone that can do everything. You really need to focus on, you know, the thing that makes you stand out and having that information early on, I think really navigated me into where I am today because I knew how to maneuver that. What does your sort of, I think you work in a few different areas too, though, right? You do work with Tatcha. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah. Tatcha. Yeah. Tatcha. But then you also have your own separate client makeup clients. Like, or is it all really? Yeah. It's separate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's separate, but together. Um, so I have an agent that represents me as a makeup artist. So um, I have one in New York, one in LA and one in Europe. And then my gig with Tatcha is consultancy and um, brand ambassador. So prior to Tatcha, I was with Christian Dior for six years, Jessica Alba's brand, Honest, for three. And then my role at Tatcha as director of artistry is really helping shape the brand. And what a lot of people don't realize is that I'm also creating um, and innovating products for them. So I met Vicky, who's the founder of Tatcha, 12 years ago. And um, she sent me blog papers to try. And then when we eventually met up in person, we just fell in love with each other. And to this day, she's like one of my best friends. And she asked me, I'll I'll never forget this. She came to New York. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And she spent the afternoon with my husband and I. And I was just kind of showing her around downtown Brooklyn. And she's like, so what is your dream? Like, what do you want to do? And I was like, my, you know, my dream is to be a creative director at a brand. And when she got purchased by Unilever in 2019, she was like, I know you're in, you have your Christian Dior gig, but I can now give you that job. If you wanted that, would you want to do that? And I was like, who could turn that down? And um, so in 2020, I came exclusively on with Tatcha and, and I'm now the first Asian American to have a position like that at a beauty brand. So she just totally gave me this incredible opportunity. And it's been like the best job ever. (laughs) So that's so cool. Um, Do you have you seen Uh, more of an Asian American presence growing since 2020 within beauty brands? Yeah, there's, you know, a lot of K-beauty that's come up, you know, Korean beauty founders. But I think, and what's interesting is that, you know, because there you have these micro trends that happen in beauty, 
you don't and say the founders of Asian descent or they're African-American or, you know, South Asian, you kind of get pigeonholed that they are a specific brand. So like Vicky, who's the founder of Tatcha, she's Taiwanese American, and but her brand is based on Japanese heritage, skincare, rituals. And then you have like Glow Recipe, who are two Korean founders that, you know, it's not necessarily a K-beauty brand because they're, it was created in the States. So you have this kind of, I don't want to say identity crisis, but sometimes the consumer can get too wrapped up into what the brand looks like rather than what it stands for. The idea of like the trends is really interesting too. And even from, like you said, it was trendy to have like an all Japanese makeup crew or styling crew back in the day. And then how, when it's not cool anymore, it just sort of gets pushed to the wayside. And I wonder about that with the current explosion of Asian, especially Korean beauty. I don't, I think that might just be my own bias as a Korean person, but I feel like so many people, non-Korean people and white people, white friends of mine are always asking me about Korean skincare. And I, I actually don't know that much about it, but, um, just this like assumption that because I am Korean, I must know and this interest in it. But I wonder how, what, like what the longevity is going to be with that. I mean, it's really fascinating. So like I went to Japan for the first time with Tatcha last year, last September, and our innovation is based there. Our product development is based there. And it was really interesting to meet with a lot of the manufacturers and um, trend reporters that, you know, they are looking at Korea, Seoul in particular, as the Hollywood of Asia. So if you look at what's happening in, you know, with Netflix and all these movies and BTS and Blackpink and all, you know, the K-pop bands, there's this whole renaissance that's happening out of Seoul. And Seoul is looked at as the Hollywood of Asia from the other countries. So it's really fascinating to even be there and understand how things work and how they look at Seoul as, you know, the end all be all, so to speak, because they've really understood beauty, fashion, movies, television in such a way that it's not necessarily, I mean, it's starting out as a trend because it's so new to so many other people, but it's going to be a, a mainstay. Like, it's really incredible what Seoul's done because of innovation and technology that's also coming out of the country. I, I think it, I'm constantly amazed that Korea has made such a mark on global culture because growing up, it always felt like such an insulated place, you know, like it just felt, I knew like my, so many people, my relatives included that really never left that, you know, and that I didn't know people visit. I knew lots of people visiting, um, Japan for sure. Like from the U S, um, I knew people visiting Japan. I knew people visiting like Thailand, even Hong Kong, but I didn't know that many people, until only the last like five, maybe 10 years that we're going to Seoul. And um, so there has been this steady rise of Asian presence worldwide, definitely in the U.S. And then over the last few years with 
the rise in Asian hate crimes as well. Sometimes I think like when an underdog of any, in, in whatever situation starts to kind of come up, there is this like tamping down of it that happens. Obviously, like a lot of it had to do with the way COVID was framed at the time and the connection, of course, to China and then people in the U.S. not being able to discern Chinese from Asian Americans as a whole. Do you see all this like amazing growth and recognition as like wholly positive? You think it's just going to keep being positive or do you think there's like, are we going to keep having to like fight for the validation and fight for our humanity in a way too? Like, I don't, do you have any thoughts about all that? It's kind of a, it's kind of a lot. I feel like we're at a global reckoning of humanity right now, you know, with everything that's happening in Israel and that challenge, I feel like just on a human level, we're all going through some sort of social reckoning with each other. And, and though all this stuff is happening with all these different ethnic backgrounds and, you know, really diving deep into colonization and how it affects certain countries with certain groups, all this that's, that's happening, it's awareness. And we just have to really figure out how we move from that in the sense that, you know, things happen. It brings this awareness. I think there's this hyper awareness now that, we all, all have to do better um, and not make it much of a trend, but rather than, you know, this is something that we really have to identify and that we have to reckon with it and we have to live with this. And how do we do that? And how do we do that harmoniously together? Because I do know that there are, even within our culture, there's a lot of colorism mm. that we have to deal with. You know, we have a lot of education that we have to do with our, you know, other Asian brothers and sisters. And there's a lot of identifying of how we move forward. How do we do it in a balanced way? I, I remember having this conversation with my sisters who are in Seattle and with all the Asian hate stuff. One of my sisters like, oh, but that's only for, you know, that's only Chinese people. I'm like... That doesn't make any sense. So it's like these little, even microaggressions within our culture with each other. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but I, I live in New York too. You Do you live in New York currently? Oh, you do? Yeah. 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 I, why did I think you were on the West Coast? I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, probably because of Karen, because Karen's on the West Coast. But so <laughs> I, I recently learned, I think it was Michelle that said this, but I had heard this before too, that the number one group that lives under the poverty line in New in New York is Asians. I was talking to an Asian friend of mine uh, just about all kinds of things. And I mentioned this statistic and she said, she was trying to say that um, Asians of all people of color, we don't really have it that bad because, you know, we're Asians are successful and have money. And I'm like, well, that's maybe your personal circle, right? Like, and I'm, I said this thing about like the Asians in New York are the number one group that live under the poverty line. And she goes, but that's by choice. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, what um, do you mean by choice? And she's like, because she said, because they, um, 
they want to get the free health care and like the free handouts and and da 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 and um I think I was speech. I don't, I was just like, hope you were shocked. <laughs> I, was, I was just speechless. I'm like, how do I, I think I smacked her on the arm and I was like, no, come on, you're joking. Right. And, um, I didn't know how to further that conversation because I just didn't expect that answer, but it's an example to your point of the internalized, um, whatever like discrimination that we have and has to come from the brainwashing of the model minority myth. I really think it must where you focus on being successful, you focus on staying out of trouble and everything will be okay. And anybody else who doesn't um, land in that kind of success or comfort, they messed up, they did something wrong or they, you know, or they're choosing to live in poverty. Um, and it's not only it's so problematic because it's within our own kind of Asian culture, mm-hmm. but then of course it's going to expand to all like all other cultures of color. And I think that's why, like anytime there's some sort of social justice um, you know, uprising of the moment, Asian Americans as a group are often called out as like, where are you guys? Why aren't you, you know, like. And that's why there were moved, you know, like there's like Asians for Black Lives Matter and, you know, Asians for Palestine and Asians for because we it needs to be really emphasized because it doesn't seem to be like a natural sort of participation for the for like Asian American masses. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I I mean, I wonder if you felt it personally when you as a non-Korean Asian lived in Korea? Like, did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I used to get in fights all the time with the locals, the local boys, (laughs) because they would tell, oh God, there's a name that you call. It's a derogatory name that they would call me because they thought that I was Korean American and chose not to speak Korean. Mm. So there was a name that they used to call me. I can't remember the name. Yeah, I I know what you mean, but I can't think of it right now either. And they're like, oh, you're choosing not to speak Korean, but you're Korean. Like my my stepsisters are Korean Mm. and they look very Korean. And when like people thought, like some people thought that I was Filipino living in Korea, but then they'd see my dad who's white with, you know, blue eyes and they were all confused, but, um, it was, yeah, I, and I dealt with that internal microaggressions from other Asians because I wasn't Asian enough. What did you say? Do you remember what you would say? I just, I wouldn't have anything to say Mm. because it is what it is. And I think early on, that's just how I dealt with things. And it was the first time that I ever felt like othered by my own people because I looked like them, but I didn't speak like them. But then the the other beautiful thing about getting to Korea was I was able to meet other biracial kids and other like half Asians who I'd never really spent time with. And Seoul at that time was just so amazing. It was like the first city I'd moved to. I knew that I wanted to be in a big city. I didn't realize that Seoul was so progressive. And so like I used to sneak into discotheques when I was 13, just to go dancing. (laughs) 
And like, it was just like the most amazing place. And it still is like, when I go back, it's just like, oh my God, like I could live there all over again. But I did have my challenges. You know, when we go through challenges, when we have to experience bullying or any sort of discrimination, um, it does empower us with empathy to not carry that on to other people, right? To to be an example. Yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah. So it's clear that you've adopted that, I think, learning and mentality with the people you now work with, like regardless of their um, identity. Um, so it's one of those like silver lining things, I guess, like you take to hard experiences and what do we, what positive impact can we have from it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what I learned early on with what I do is like so much of it is not only about making them feel as beautiful as they can be, but also to take care of them. And I think my experiences, personal experiences, with you know so many different people and just being empathetic has really helped me really understand and how to take care of somebody um and i think that's kind of like another like thing that i've been able to do really well in my businesses is to not only take care of them on the outside but also make them feel good on the inside it's probably how i would imagine you keep long, long-term relationships with clients, yeah. right? It's like a, there's a, there's a trust there. So do you get flown around based on like where your certain clients are? They <laughs> I do <laughs> like, I was just in LA with a client um, shooting an ad campaign. I mean, how amazing is that? Because obviously there are, are other makeup artists local to where they are right but there it's obviously such a specific art form that they want the person that they've worked with before that they trust yeah yeah i i mean and that's what i tell a lot of my assistants too just like you know part of the job is yeah you have to learn artistry and you have to learn the technical skill that comes with that craft but i would say you know six 60%, 70% of our job is to also make sure that, you know, they feel taken care of because once they feel that they'll take care of you, because like you said, there's a trust that's built. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I get to travel to amazing places with my amazing clients and I don't ever take for granted, you know, these opportunities because it's once in a lifetime. When you do makeup, for them is the skincare just naturally part of it? I feel like they're two separate industries, really, right? Like beauty versus skincare, but they're related. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think for me, why skincare has been such an important part of my makeup journey is because I, when I was in high school, I had really bad cystic acne. And, and it wasn't until I realized literally in the past five years that the reason why I spend so much time not making, not, I hate seeing makeup on the face, especially foundation, complexion, powder, like skin needs to look like skin. So I've developed this whole process to achieve that. And I think it's because I suffered from really bad skin as a kid. That's been like this subconscious goal. 
in my work is to not is to to show skin off, make skin the you know the thing, versus piling a ton of stuff over your skin to make you feel like you're being hidden away or creating this like coat of armor on your face. I feel like most makeup looks like that though. Most makeup, even just people I see day to day, you can see the makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, me personally, and a lot of my clients, they don't want to ever feel like that. I mean, the thing about working with actresses is that when they have to work, they know that they have to put it all on. It's almost kind of like a performance. You know, if they, even if they're promoting a film or we have press days or even if it's red carpet, it's for something. So they know that they have to turn on the theatrics of it. But a lot of times when my actors are not working, they're in no makeup. It's part of their job. They don't look at, you know, makeup as an everyday thing. So and that's kind of how I've kind of created the way that I work is I want you to see the person and not the make. Hmm. I love that. And I know everyone's skin is different. And so everyone's skincare has to be personalized, but are there yeah. any ge- general tips? Did you read Michelle Lee's Substack article a couple of weeks ago where she talks about dehydration and like skin moisture? And she says, it's actually not from like, you can't just drink your way to hydrated skin. I didn't know that. I would always think, cause my skin, I have eczema and I definitely lean towards dry skin. Me too. Yeah, and I would be like, I just have to drink more water, drink more water. But um, I guess it's two different kinds of. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's hydration on the inside, but there's also hydration on the outside that needs to happen as well. And yeah, you have to really understand your skin type to really optimize, you know, your skincare because what you see on TikTok, TikTok may not necessarily be what is needed for your skin type. And I feel like people don't understand that. Are there any kind of general tips that can work for most people or like sort of like um, at the very least do these three things or something? For yeah, us? yeah. I mean, right now, because the weather's changing, everyone's skin is starting to react to the heat that's happening indoors to the cold humidity that's happening outside. So you kind of have to really understand how your skin reacts to those environmental changes. I feel like for the most part, in the winter, skin just tends to get drier because you're dealing with the heat. You could still be a combination of oily skin, but still feel dry. So it's understanding what products that are going to sit in kind of on your face that's going to really give you that hydration, but it's also going to give you that protection that you need. It's skincare is a journey. Mm. And once you figure it out, it makes a world of difference because once you understand your skincare, then you'll understand how makeup sits on top of it. And it may make you realize you don't need to wear so much makeup. Which is interesting for a makeup artist to say. <laughs> I would expect you to be like, no, you have to wear. <laughs> I'm like the most anti-makeup makeup artist. <laughs> Almost to a fault sometimes. But I love that, though, because you're ultimately encouraging people just to find like just the, your inner your inner beauty, essentially. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I'm yeah, that's um, Vicky would always say that, you know, 
It was more about being creating comfort in your own skin versus covering up the skin. Mm. What what do you what did you do though to get through those teenage years when you had issues with your skin? Do you just have <sighs> to do you just have to like grow up and let um, your hor- hormones like balance out? Like what? I mean, to be honest, the re- like one reason why I started working at Aveda was because they created this one product that was it was for horm- hormonal acne. And I think it was like a combination of salicylic acid and tea tree oil and something. And it corrected my acne. And when that happened, it like changed my life because before I was just, you know, Stridex acne pads and benzoyl peroxide. Those were like the two acne ingredients that you were able to get over the counter back in the eighties. And I, my, I didn't know who, what a dermatologist was until my twenties. Didn't know yeah. you, there was even a skin doctor. Yeah. So I wasn't asking my parents to take me to the dermatologist to get, you know, get put on Accutane. Cause I just didn't even know that was available. Yeah. And also too, like Asians don't talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's like, you're going through the change. Just deal with it. Deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just deal with it. And this was also back in the you know eighties where magazines were the resource for all of that stuff. So that's also when I kind of fell in love with magazines and reading my sister's magazines and understanding, you know, beauty. It was pre-internet, pre-computer. Didn't have any of that access. Now it's a whole other beast. Technology has completely changed the way that we live and the way that we, you know, ingest and digest information. For better and for worse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Looking through magazines, though, like, you know, because like there's so little representation back then, you know, like as far as Asians and I mean, people of color for sure, generally, but Asians for sure. I, you know, I saw that and was getting the subliminal messaging that like I could never be that, you know, that I, I can never be in those magazines or look like those people in those magazines it's amazing that you looked at it and it was something that you really appreciated. You saw the beauty in and you were like, you are, you were like, I'm going to become a part of that world. And you are, how does it look now? Like, do you think for young people that are in their teens and thinking about what they want to do for their career and when they're looking at magazines or other things within beauty, is there more representation you think? Oh, hundred percent. There's definitely more representation than, and back when I started in the 90s, I mean, when I started, you know, you had your token Asian models per season. Um, now there's more Asian models. There's not a lot of like Asian spokespeople. The generations of the supermodel has completely changed. And I think now it's more about if you are a model, how you present yourself, but also you have to become more than just the face. You have to have a purpose. You have to have a voice. You have to, you know, want to be able to change, you know, the idea of. So, and that's what, you know, social media has been able to do for a lot of people. How you show up on social media, how you can leverage that space. Um, That was definitely something that I had to, you know, during the pandemic, I really had to kind of sit down with myself and kind of see just because I feel like it's such a, it's created such a competitive field, especially in my world. 
people want to know more about who you are rather than what you do now. Yeah. I really see that. And when I see people that I appreciate like their personality or whatever storytelling that they may share, it does pique my interest on whatever products that they're involved with. I typically have always been like, I don't understand fashion. I don't understand beauty. Like I, it's always felt like a, you know, like a very, I felt very foreign to that, but I have had instances where I see, especially other Asian women showing like their little shops to Sephora or whatever. And I've literally gone to Sephora the next day and like bought all those things. Cause I'm like, Oh, that part, you know, like I'm inspired. I'm inspired by that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's a real thing, isn't it? Yeah. I recently did a post where there's this awesome Japanese, it's kind of like the Japanese target. That's kind of like how I tell everybody. And it's in um, Herald Square. It's on the second floor. And you can get like chips and cookies and sweets. And then you can go to the next aisle and it's like makeup and eyelashes and mascaras. Like it's this one-stop fun place. And I think if you take the seriousness out of something and just make it more playful and fun, it allows someone to get more excited about it. And and I think because makeup can be so personal and you watch it on TikTok or you watch it on Instagram and it's so serious, the application and all of these things that you think you need to do. But then it's literally like candy. How you get excited about candy. Makeup's the same way with certain people. And for some people, it's scary. But I feel like once you allow someone to find that joy in makeup, it opens up a whole new world. I love it. I have a three-year-old daughter actually. And um, I mean, our kids are watching what we do all the time. My older one's a, a, a boy. So there's definitely differences um, so far, but she just loves watching anything I do, like, you know, when I'm getting ready and she wants me to use my brush to brush her hair. And like, she'll, she'll like find little, whatever, lip gloss or whatever. And like, and she, it's joyful. She does it like she's she's having fun with it. You know, she's like, oh, this is a color and I can put it on myself. And, you know, there's no rules. And it's like to your point, like it's not this serious thing. And it's not a am I good enough or what's the right you know, what's the right yeah. exact uh. thing for me? It's like, no, there's an openness to it. And um, I think it all circles back to especially as um as a person of color, just like that celebrating of just who we are yeah and like coming from that place of joy like joy and fun and um i really love that um as i know we're ending here with our time but um i've been i've been asking the final question to my guests of what it means for you to be asian i know it's like a big question <laughs> I know when I saw that. Yeah, I know. But yeah, what does it mean for you to be Asian? Or what are you most proud of in your Asianness? What I'm most proud of, I think for me, it's the opportunity to, to really learn and understand culture and heritage that the United, you know, I love my father. <laughs> I, I've learned so much. I, I wasn't great at U.S. history as a kid, but I've learned to appreciate who I've become 
and where I've come from. And now, so I'm, I'm writing a book currently, and it's been an incredible journey to really dive into understanding culture. And even though I'm not biologically from Korea, you know, Korean, I learned so much while I was there about Korean culture, Korean food, and even, you know, visiting Japan. I mean, I feel like Asia is such a rich place for so much, not only history and storytelling and my world of beauty, but just culturally and socially, you have to be open to want to learn all of these things. And I think if you don't allow yourself that opportunity, it's such a, uh, it's so missed because there's just, it's so rich in everything. So that's what I'm proud of. You said that you're not biologically Korean, but obviously you live there, you have Korean family. But beyond that, there is this resonance, I think, amongst all Asian cultures. I mean, when we we talked a little bit earlier about like, we're all human, right? So through humanity, we we have that connection. But if we're just talking about our Asian identity, whether you have Vietnamese heritage or Korean heritage or Japanese heritage, there's, there is that like resonance that this like ease that I feel when I talk to a fellow Asian person for the first time, there is that like deep history. It must be like built into our DNA or something because I, yeah. yeah, you feel it, right? Like, yeah, I do. But I mean, it was interesting to be in Japan and really like I had never experienced the act of doing something for someone else in such a way. Like you're fighting with someone because they want they they're allowing you to get on the subway first, the subway train or they're opening the you know, you're you know, you're kind of fighting to who's going to open the door for you or for them. And there's just all these little things that I discovered that I'm just like, oh my God, it's so much about for other people and not just yourself. And I think that, you know, that's the one thing that I've, I've learned and valued being Asian is, you know, you don't think about yourself first. It's about others. And like right now, me and my sisters are, you know, our parents are getting older. We're trying to sort out like, how are we going to take care of them? I can't have this conversation with, you know, my Caucasian friends because it's something that they don't think about. Do you know what I mean? So it's like little things like that, that you like, you start to, and it's almost, you know, as it, as when you're young, you know, we'll take care of you, but then do know that you have to step it up for us when we get older. So it's this, this constant act of others. Remember when um, everyone had to mask during the pandemic and, you know, there was a lot of outrage in America about like, well, I don't want to mask. And the whole thing of you should mask for others. And yeah. that mentality, having worked in Asia, that was, it was talked about, like that works in Asia. But, oh, man, that doesn't work in America where like the individual and the self and that is really prioritized as value. So like, it's sort of that messaging backfired. And I remember reading something where somebody was like, Americans never, we should never have said like, wear the mask to keep other people safe. Like you should have focused on like keeping the self safe. And that mentality was something that worked in Asia. 
but not so much here. Right. Because <laughs> when I was in Japan and everybody there was still masked, and this was after the pandemic, I felt like an asshole that I wasn't wearing a mask. And then because everyone else is wearing a mask. So it's like this perpetual, you know, conflict that, you know, when you're there, that you kind of, you're kind of othering yourself <laughs> in right. a sense because they all figured it out. You're the one who's just not caught up. So well, maybe we can bring that, like, kind of that um, selfless sort of um, Asian wisdom. We can keep, <laughs> keep bringing that more into like our daily life as Asian Americans. <laughs> Totally, totally. Thank you so much, Daniel. This was so, so lovely. Yeah, this was so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing space with me. This was so fun. Thanks so much for joining us on Voices on the Side. I know that you have so many podcasts to choose from, and there's so much going on in everyone's lives. So it really means a lot to have your support. If you can take a couple extra moments to subscribe and rate and maybe even drop us a review, it would help us so much to get this fledgling podcast out into the world. Take good care and see you soon.